0: Welcome to the Joe Watt Podcast. I am Joe Vendramini from the University of Florida. And today, our guest is Dr. David Raleigh from Texas A&M University. Dr. Raleigh, thanks for
1: being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you,
0: yeah. And, and Dr. Raleigh, can you please uh, tell us some uh, background
1: information about yourself? Sure, thank you. Um, so. Uh, after I graduated, many years ago, I went to work for a, a swine breeding stock company in Kansas, and I was there for 10 years The help swine breeders. They don't exist anymore. But uh, while I was there, I worked in every aspect of swine management and production and began at the very bottom, washing houses and doing moving pigs, doing everything. And then um, but two geneticists while I was there really influenced me. They didn't tell me that I should go to school. But I sort of made a decision to go back to graduate school. So I got my master's in animal breeding at Texas AM, and then I got my PhD also in genetics at Texas and M. And so after I finished my program here, I was assigned to I got a job with the subtropical agricultural research station in Brooksville, Florida. So uh, Florida felt like home to us. My daughter grew up there and and went to high school there. And we went to softball games and basketball games and all kinds of youth sports and stuff and really have great friends and great memories of Florida. I've been there 10 years. Uh, the U.S. government began to start cutting funding to the station. And one of the first things they did was to transfer uh, some of us. So I got transferred to Nebraska and at that time, I interviewed for two other jobs, and one of those was this one here on faculty at Texas A&M. So uh, that's where I am now. So, uh, yeah, so I'm a professor here at Texas a and I teach uh, undergraduate course, animal breeding, big one. I teach some graduate courses. My research is primarily with beef cattle, but I also work with some sheep guys, too. So we have a couple of big sheep projects we're working on um since for almost two years now i've been the interim director at the mcgregor research center outside of waco texas and we have about a thousand cows and about 6800 acres total and we farm about 1500 acres of that and so um yeah so it's very good and i enjoy it a lot but uh thanks for this opportunity to get to be on your podcast yeah sure
0: it's my pleasure and uh and I, I think we have talked about and visited about many things. And, and every time that I listen to your presentations, uh, I, I learn something. And you talk about things that are, are quite interesting. And the last one that I think that really caught my attention was your presentation that you were describing the genetic markers and how the genetic markers have been used in, in beef cattle selection and production in general. And, and David, could you please give us a, a little definition and, and what is the current state of the
1: use of genetic markers in beef cattle? Sure. By the way, thank you for your kind of comments. Um, yeah, genetic marker. So if we think about the genome, um, uh, any mammalian genome is, is, is two copies, right? A paternal, one of paternal origin and one of maternal origin. And, In the case of cattle, for example, there's 30 chromosomes, and each of those chromosomes is like a string, okay? And we know, because researchers have really published some excellent, we call them maps, of these genomes, right? So we know physically what exists on each chromosome. By the the way, we number them from largest to smallest. So the largest is chromosome one. Actually, the largest is the X chromosome because the X chromosome is huge. The Y chromosome, in contrast, is very, is very small. But uh, chromosome one is the largest and then chromosome 29 is the smallest. So in, in those, we know where certain genes exist because of the work that's done so far, but it's all because of markers. So what is a marker? A marker is something that we can physically see it's either a pattern of nucleotides. By the way, those nucleotides are, there's four of them, A, T, C, and and, um, G, right? So those occur in random patterns or not random patterns, but we can look and we know that certain patterns of those represent a marker. We also know we can take certain chemicals and they always cut in certain places in the DNA. Remember the DNA is a string So certain chemicals always find a a specific pattern and they cut right there. So we can use that as a marker. We also can see things cytogenetically. In other words, if we could pull it up and look at it, we can actually visualize what's there. And that's what allowed everyone to construct the genomes. So when we say markers, markers don't really have function, right? They're just physical. They're something we see. We know they're there and we use them as a reference point to to direct our genetic activities. So that's kind of what a marker is. And they come in a variety of forms and we've used, you know, the popular ones early on are not the popular ones now. Now we have some called uh, single nucleotide polymorphism markers. And that's a big word, right? Polymorphism just means a change, a difference. So if we went and had a string of DNA from a set of animals, and we found a couple that have a certain change in this one position, well, that's what we would call a single nucleotide polymorphism, mm-hmm. and those give us reference with respect to the map, right? So we can deviate from those, and we find genes, or we find other structural abnormalities, or structural things that help us. Does that kind of help? Have- with the terms of what a marker is? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that yeah. Is, a, is a great definition of what is actually the marker, right? Because, yeah, there, yeah, the, the, there is like a, a perception or, or just a general feeling that the marker is the gene. When, when you know, it,
1: it's probably included there, but there are other for, uh, things for, uh, related no, to the no. Yeah. The marker, is uh, it just points us, it gives mm-hmm. us, positional reference. Maybe you've heard of arrays. Have you heard of arrays? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Array. Yeah. So for a really, it's so economical now. We can pay $25 and we get this array is a piece of glass and it has a bunch of chemical reactions on it. And all we have to do is assay that one per animal. And all of a sudden we have, you know, a hundred thousand places in the genome that we know where they are, they're markers, and we can use those in our knowledge of the animal type to help us, you know, associate it with what do we see in the animal? What phenotype is important to us? So those arrays are really popular now, and they're very economical too. We can use them almost all the time, but they're composed of single nucleotide polymorphism markers, in other words, we know where they are so, once we have it, and we assay an animal's DNA, then we go, okay, well, we get those 100,000 genotypes at those places, and we use them statistically then, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and we, I think, uh, translating
0: that to the production standpoint, it seems that on the dairy business, uh, they have been using that probably longer, and, and, and now... Uh, I think more widely than on the beef kettle side of the production system. But, but it seems that now the, the beef kettle side is also picking up and, and trying to relate some of those traits
1: to the market, right? Sure, that's right. So dairy is, its structure is very conducive to utilization of these types of techniques, right? Because first of all, you have, um, you know, you have a progressive people that own a lot of cows, okay? And so they're able to take advantage of economies of scale with respect to genomics. Also, there's very few bulls used on the dairy population, right? That's helpful too, especially with these kinds of things. So yeah, they've used the markers and we are starting to use them too. Of course, ideally what we wanna find is the gene, gene itself, right? Right, right. But it's not there, and the marker it just serves as a a proxy mm-hmm. for a so yeah. That's where we are with in beef cattle genetics right now. Actually, lots of effort to do some prediction of merit using markers for sure. And and
0: now on this pre- predicting something with those those markers, I think I'll, we'll go to more specific things such as I think, you know, uh, as you said, the beef cattle production is so diverse on the breed and uh, production systems and climate, e- everything else, it's yep. e- even, even different species. Um, so um, uh, how is the, the, the current situation, for example, w- one trait that uh, here in Florida and in Texas, everywhere is really important is, is the puberty, right? Of mm-hmm. female mainly those ones that are somehow bred to both indicus, right? Yeah. That may, may have a little more delayed in puberty because of, of the genetic uh, composition of that animal. So uh, right. do, do you have uh, something uh, relating those genetic markers to, for example, puberty?
1: Yeah. So I know that there's research efforts directed to that end, a mm-hmm. I'm not aware of an EPD that has, that is marker-enhanced, right? Okay. The venue right now is for uh, breed association to use markers to, to make their EPDs more accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, aged puberty is a different one, right? Because we know it's lowly heritable, no mm-hmm. matter what, right? Right. It's very responsive to crossbreeding, okay? So... That's not to say it's not more heritable in some populations than in others. And in fact, a very famous um, geneticist at the University of Florida, he was also the department head, Dr. Marvin Coger, he always thought that ancient purity was more heritable in Brahmin cattle than it was in other types of cattle. And he was, I suspect he was right, you know. But the idea would be then to, um, to, to go and associate values of age at puberty with these s and and then hopefully try to incorporate that information as marker effects in the prediction of genetic merit. To my knowledge, there's not anybody doing that yet with age at puberty. There may be a group in Brazil doing it, but I, I'm not aware of one in the United States that's doing it right now.
0: Mm-hmm
1: and and would you think that
0: like you mentioned in brazil because they have that a large indipus that is purebred bosindicus uh population so do you think that will uh, facilitate the per- the process mainly because they they have more
1: like a purebred system well that for sure we do know that um that heritability and these these marker associations are very unique to breed. In other words, what's estimated in Angus doesn't necessarily work and very well in Milor, mm-hmm. vice versa. And the structure of the beef industry in Brazil is is really good that way. There's large populations with mm-hmm. that are controlled, and the opportunity to gather data on those large populations and to do statistical association with markers really enhances the ability to learn in a network population. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think Mm -hmm. you said it correctly.
0: And just the the second um, trait here that I think it's also quite popular and it has been around for a while uh, in in the beef industry, is uh, RFI or relative feed intake, or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a different concept than than feed efficiency, but it, mm-hmm. it relates to the same parameters. And um, we we have seen a lot of data with the RFI where also the the herdability of that it, it seems that to be somehow low or quite variable. <laughs> yeah. And and how does the genetic markers would relate to
1: that trade? Sure. So um... First of all, there are a lot of breed associations that estimate EPDs for feed efficiency of some sort including residual feed intake, so yeah. There's two ways they approach this. One is we take the markers, all of our genetic prediction is based upon relatedness, right? right? We can use these big groups of markers to help refine relatedness And that's used pretty widely in the United States and Australia and New Zealand with prediction of genetic merit for feed efficiency. Yeah, one group now, they do EPDs for the Hereford Association. They will estimate effects for those markers and include those as a summation into the EPD or they will blend it in some way. The other group simply uses the markers to, to do relatedness. So there's a lot of breed associations that do exactly that. They don't try to estimate the marker effects on the trait. So uh, both ways are done in the United States. It's very popular. Um, uh, markers are pretty helpful when, trade is, when the heritability is low because if you know the markers, then you can sort of compensate for some of the low heritability. There's a group in Canada also that looks at uh, heterosis in terms of markers with respect to this trait too, for uh, residual feed intake and also average daily gain, residual, average daily gain, those types of traits. So yeah, it's very popular. It's a You can buy genetic tests for sure. And they're including some of those markers on some of the genetic tests from the major genetics companies that sell products in the United States. So yeah, those are in there too. They're usually as a part of an index. It's not a single single test you buy. It's a part of an index that they've built into it. Similar to the way the American Angus Association creates indexes of EPDs also. So, yeah, so that's a good trait to to talk about that because there's a lot of effort being put into utilization of markers to predict genetic merit for for feed-type traits. Yeah. And and, uh,
0: I think as you mentioned at the start, so this is certainly an evolving thing, right? Mm -hmm. That I think every time that uh, a new research or new markers, new genes and... and I think, I I, I am not sure where we are at right now, but I think it seems that progress have been made throughout the way. And I think that
1: is, you will keep going, right? I think that's my feeling. You're, I think you're right. You know, look at the computational advances of the last 10 years. I don't expect those to slow down. I expect us to be able to handle bigger and more data all the time in the prediction of genetic merit. I think there might be an upper limit on what's effective there, Though we need to start finding genes mm-hmm. we need to transition from markers to genes. We're gonna have a sufficient computing. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have great research populations. We need to start understanding genes and gene networks and how can we predict animal performance if we know the actual genotype of the gene, not the marker. So uh, I think that's our direction. But computationally, boy, and our students are brilliant. They're smarter than we ever were. They're getting better and better, and they're able to do more things computationally. Mm-hmm. There's there's gonna be a lot of change in our discipline in the next 10 to 15 years. it's, it's quite exciting, really. Yeah, um, I,
0: I, I am not sure if, uh, uh, although I have seen, some people trying to translate that gene to a, a trait right now in a way that is black and white. I don't see that way, but I, I think what probably the future, right? Well, like we are talking about the computer technologies. We're gonna get there one day, and we may may have a, a genetic test that will tell us the gene, and then we'll have a probability that that gene will translate in some feed or, efficiency or whatever trade, right? We, uh, sure. I, I think that, that is the way, I think we have a lot of information now. It's a lot of noise in the system. Mm-hmm. I don't know sure. if you agree and, and may not sure, be accurate. May not be really accurate. I think uh, kind of rushing the technology and trying to get the end product without we having the, the information that we need. But I have no doubt
1: that we are going towards that way. And we'll make it. You bet. You bet. It is a, it's an exciting time. It's also important for us to remember genetics is only part of the equation, right? Genetic expression is contextual for the environment, right? One of my favorite quotes, you remember who Craig Venter is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Craig Venter was the guy who published the first complete human genome. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is he says, DNA is never destiny. It's always contextual, right? right? The genes are always expressed in an environment that influence their expression greatly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that is exactly
0: right, right? You you can make the best Burma selection that you have in South Florida, but if you take to Nebraska, you may not. Yeah, we know that, you may, right? <laughs> you may not do as well as it's doing here, and vice versa, right? We can have That's the best... Right
1: the national right. library
0: and bring it here and but anyway david uh, i really would like to thank you yeah for participating in the podcast we are going towards the end of our time here but it's
1: very interesting and i really appreciate your time uh thank you so much joe you're a good friend uh, i'm happy and uh, happy to talk to people in florida we, we do miss florida we appreciate <laughs> you guys
0: yeah, we hope to see you here sometime so we'll we'll talk more about this this interesting thing. Yeah. Okay. And uh thank you for for listening to the podcast. I am Joe Vandermeen. Joe what?